0: Coming up on today's show, Jean Charest is in, running for leader of the Conservative Party. We'll hear from him and Melissa Cowette. Canada has come out with their green bond framework. Basically, it's funding for all kinds of green projects, but they've excluded nuclear energy. And March break is upon us. So as we've been talking about, Jean Charest will run as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. The official announcement happening in Calgary later today. But the cat's out of the bag. He's doing a media tour today. In fact, he was on with Global News Morning today out east in an interview with Global's Anthony Robart.
1: Uh, Here's what he had to say this morning. Here's that interview. Many questions, of course, but you've been out of politics almost 10 years. Out of federal politics, what, almost approaching 25 years. Why return now? For Canada, you know, the
2: the common thread of my whole political life, Anthony, has been the idea of Canada. And uh, I, I think that we as citizens of this country have won the first prize of, uh, in, in the world in terms of, of the country in which we're born. And I see a country that's way below its potential uh, economically, uh, socially, uh, you know, in, in our place in the world. And I, I also, you know, feel very strongly that the Conservative Party of Canada has a responsibility to the country and to Canadians to be a national political party and that ultimately, alternative to uh, to the liberal government and uh, that's not happening now the party is divided so this is this is really a moment that's important not just for the party for the country to uh, to unite and to bring into our uh, our party members and to offer a national alternative a national vision of the country
1: But of course, you know, politicians have attempted comebacks before to lead their parties, Uh, haven't been successful. Joe Clark, for one, John Turner, for another. What do you say to those, the critics who worry that you may have lost a step, the edge that is actually required after all these years away from politics?
2: Well, Anthony, you know, all my political career people have said that. I was in a political party that was reduced to two members only in 1993. Guess what? And, uh, and then in 1995, I was uh, front and center in the referendum for the future of the country. I went on to lead the Liberal Party of Quebec in 98 and prevent another referendum. And then I had three conse- consecutive uh, majority governments. And if there's anyone who knows what it is to lead, to face uh, odds, and to win, because uh, I know how to organize and I know how to win and win a majority government. I'm that person. That's what I believe in. And in fact, I bring this experience to the job. I'll, I'll give you an example. I think it would be a breath of fresh air in Ottawa to have a prime minister who has the experience of governing a major province and to know who knows how to make this federal system work efficiently to get big things done. And, and that's exactly what I'm going to bring to the leadership, both of the party and the country.
1: But over the course of your political career, you, you say that this is for Canada. This is what Canada needs. This is also what the party needs. Um, as premier and even in federal politics, you've gone head to head with the force of Quebec separatism. Uh, yeah. Given all this, some of the divisions across Canada right now as rivaling that. Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not. But then there's the divide in the Conservative Party between uh, the social conservative faction, the red Tories, everything in between, for example. A divide, as you mentioned, has contributed to three election losses in a row. Big question is, what can be done to mend those fences? And why is Jean Charet the man for the job?
2: Well, because I've been tested in that regard. In my ability to lead a caucus, my ability to unite people, my ability to be a conservative... Period. I mean, I'm not trying to be a uh, right, left wing, red, <coughs> blue. That's not the idea here. The idea is the values in which we uh, will we'll govern ourselves. I believe in fiscal conservatism, and I have a record on that. I believe in market based economy. That's a conservative value. In policies that are pro growth for economy, which allow us then to make choices. In policies that support families. Uh, conservatives have a view of how federalism works, Anthony that is ingrained in our DNA and history that respects the uh, jurisdiction of the provinces and to make the federal system work efficiently. I believe in the rule of law. I mean, th- those are the basic values by which I will govern and have always governed myself and that I'll bring to the party and to the country.
1: Well, Mr. Shrey, as expected, um, really even before you announced, the attacks began, uh, cl- including yes. from your leadership challenger, Pierre Poliev, on yes. your conservative record. As liberal premier of Quebec, you raise taxes. Uh, you oppose the abolition of the long gun registry. You've supported and implemented a carbon tax in Quebec. First of all, I mean, do you regret any of those decisions? And how do you plan going forward to fend off those attacks?
2: Anthony, I am going to be attacked. Now, I want I want to warn you, not only am I going to be attacked by some people in this race, and that says more about them than me, actually. I mean, they're, gonna, they're spending more time attacking me than actually defending their own race. And I take it as a compliment, because it is. But watch for the attacks that are going to come from the Bloc Québécois and the separatists. I mean, it is going to be massive. And why? Because if I lead this party, the difference between me and the other candidates is that I will win. I've done it in the past, against great odds. I will win and form a majority government. And the Bloc Québécois, for example, know very well that I will bring to Ottawa a a delegation of Quebec MPs and that they're going to be out. So the the attacks are going to be massive. There'll be plenty of time for me during the campaign to speak to my record. And my record speaks for itself. I mean, it is about whether it's on taxes, fiscal conservatism. I'll give you one example. When Mr. de comes to government after 15 years uh, of my government with Mr. Cuyah. He's left with an $8 billion surplus and a higher credit rating in Quebec than Ontario. Now, that didn't happen overnight. It happened after years of hard work and discipline, something I believe in and something that I delivered for the people of Quebec who have a stronger economy today and a best, better fiscal situation than they had before.
0: And that is, uh, well, federal Leadership candidate, Jean Charret, speaking with Global's Anthony Robart this morning. Uh, appreciate the interview. Thank you, Anthony. Okay. Wow, this is going to be good, hey? <laughs> he, he's no lightweight. He's a political veteran. And he's going to be running on his record and his experience, as he said. And he's got a lot of baggage. What do you think? Could you vote for a former Quebec Premier as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada? We're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to chat with Melissa Cowett, a Conservative strategist, an insider, and some great insight. Always with her. We'll talk to her right after this. Couple of the texts that came in as we were listening to Jean Chretet in his uh, interview with Global News Morning. Uh, Stephen says, "Morning, my wife and I have tickets to the launch tonight. Finally, someone we can support for conservative leader." And my wife's a school teacher, so that says a lot. Uh, this listener says, "Not a chance. Would I vote for yet another left-leaning liberal like Jean Chretet? That would be Erin O'Toole all over again." And that is what it's going to come down to. Let's get some insight now from Melissa Cowett. Uh, Melissa is a conservative strategist, consultant, and writer. Always great to have her on the show. Hi, Melissa. How are you?
3: Hi. Good morning. How are you?
0: I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Uh, just uh, It's kind of exciting for political junkies like myself, and I'm sure for you a day like today. Um, did you have a chance to hear the interview with Jean-Claire? I guess that would be his official opening statement in this campaign. He's good. He's smooth. I mean, the guy's been around, Right.
3: He's been around. He's got a lot of experience in politics. He's been through some tough fights in his day, um, both federally and provincially in Quebec. And so I think he's he's wise in the fact that he knows what he's getting into and he, he knows um, how to do politics. I will say, though, um, politics is very different now than yeah. even in 2012 when he left, right? So I think that'll be a very interesting thing to watch is how does that sort of... I don't want to say old style in the sense of being negative, but how does the style of politics that worked in the 90s and early 2000s, how does that reconcile with the realities of social media today, the 24 hour news cycle, the state of division within the country? I think that'll be a really interesting interesting thing to watch in terms of how he how he performs within that context
0: I think that's a great point we all know Pierre Polyev is really good at the social media game he's really strong Jean Charest didn't have a social media presence for his leadership campaign until this morning the guy I mean he's not he's not involved in social media they just launched the pages today so he's got a lot of catching up to do in that area and uh, you know what I mean a lot of politics is waged on Twitter these days Melissa
3: It is, and it comes between this sort of frustration um, that I think a lot of people are seeing in politics at every level. There is obviously this shift and this change that has happened over the past three to five years, I'd say, in terms of how people consume their news, um, how people are motivated in politics. And I think we're in a state now where it's like um, there are people who have this historical experience and sort of – states people type approach, if I, if I can say that, of how things used to be, where the circles of, of influence and power used to be much smaller, um, because less people were just actively involved in politics and paid attention to it. So that means that a fewer number of people were making decisions, juxtaposed with what we see now, where everybody can have an opinion, everybody can weigh in on social media, people are yeah. making their decisions on social media reporting and media is happening based on what happens on social media and so this 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 circle of power and influence if you will has I think opened up to be so much bigger than than politicians from ten or 20 years ago are used to and they have real impact and real influence and I think that's that's the sort of two two um, approaches that we see now is like making establishment happy or making people who actually are going to go out and vote happy. And that's a choice that every campaign has to make, right?
0: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um... As far as Charest's candidacy, he comes with baggage. Anybody who's been in politics since 1984 is going to be lugging around some baggage, not the least of which for him, especially in Alberta, will be the fact that he was the liberal premier of Quebec. Now, sure, I mean, liberals in Quebec might be a little different than liberals in other places, but he was the liberal premier of Quebec. Um, You know, How does he manage to sort of position himself as not a liberal premier of Quebec? That's not going to fly in Alberta. I'm seeing it on the text line right now
3: well, this is the thing, right? I think, you know, if you dive into the dynamics and the specifics of that, you might come to a different opinion. But on Twitter, liberal from Quebec is where a lot of people will stop reading and mm-hmm. make their decisions, right? So I think it is going to be a challenge for him. It's very interesting that later today, he's decided, obviously, to do his um, his launch in Calgary, which I think is a way for him to sort of start the race off by saying that he cares about the West. He cares about the oil and gas sector and send um, that message as well. Um, But I think the challenges in Western Canada um, and particularly within the Conservative Party and the conservative movement are a lot different now. As I, as I said before, you know, like it's not, it's not just those, um, sophisticated economic issues that people are caring about um, people do really care about affordability people do really care about um, parity and sort of um, the kind of deal that Alberta gets within within Canada and I think that those are those are sort of more emotional issues than technical issues so that is an interesting thing for him to consider as well is that it's, it's a lot of Alberta's Frustration right now is I think more emotional than it is yeah. technical.
0: Uh, I think Pierre Polyev is seen as the front runner and probably still is, even with Sheree entering the race. How big of a threat is he? I mean, does this change the fundamentals of the race dramatically? And are there more names that could possibly still enter?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that people, since the beginning of the race, Pierre Poliev was obviously very quick to declare his candidacy. He was the first one days after O'Toole was ousted back um, back in February. Um, so he has been here for a while. I think people sort of always assumed that Sheree was going to enter the race. So I don't think that changes the calculus of the race too, too much right now. Of course, Leslie Lewis announcing earlier this week that she is going to run She'll be an interesting um, dynamic, I would say, more so than than Charay for, for Pierre, because Lesley Lewis has a really strong support base in Western Canada. Um, she did really well in the last
4: conservative yeah, she race did.
3: in 2020, and she's got the social conservatives as well, which... Even though that might not be aligned with where most Canadians are, that is a significant block uh, and active and involved block within the Conservative Party. So, for the purposes of winning the leadership, that will be important. And then you also have Roman Baber, who has officially announced an Ontario MPP who sits as an independent now because he was kicked out of um, Doug Ford's um, caucus. Um, he's also social conservative. So, I think that that those two will almost be more of a challenge for. Pierre than Charest is, because I think Charest speaks to just a different part. The anti Polyev, right? Yeah, I I think so.
0: Yeah, it will be interesting to see. And you mentioned Leslie Lewis. I wanted to ask you about her, because she really did impress a lot of people in the last leadership race, which was only two years ago. And now she's building on that. Could she be a bigger factor? She did very well last time. Could she legitimately be a factor this time, building on what she did last time?
3: She could, but... She came out of the race um, in 2020 as being the sort of new person on the block yeah. and building on that. I don't know that she's actually done enough during her the last six months or so in her time within the party to um, really, really impress people. I think that. Um, I think that she's sort of missed that opportunity. I mean, she still could, um, and certainly with the social conservatives, but I think that she's been a little bit underwhelming as to what people were expecting now that she's actually a sitting MP in Ontario and, and in the Conservative
0: caucus. Never a dull moment. Melissa, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us.
3: Thanks, Shay. Take care.
0: You too. That is Melissa Cowett, who is a Conservative strategist, writer, consultant giving us a little insight as to what she thinks might happen with this conservative race, which is, uh, you know, as she said, Sheree has been bouncing around for a long time, but today it becomes official. Right now, though, we're going to switch gears and talk about something um, that if you're like me, I think will come as uh, something of an education. We've talked about nuclear energy before on this show, and there's a large group of people out there, experts, scientists, people who, who are into this, who say, listen, if you want to be serious about the transitional economy, if you want to be serious about alternative energy and green energy, and the list goes on, and you're not talking about nuclear energy, you're right out of the game. It needs to be part of the discussion. Now, we know what the barriers are. Think nuclear, and you think Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and Fukushima, scary stuff. Um, it's not like that anymore. We know in our province, they're talking about the small reactors as being something that might happen here. Uh, there's been some progress on that front, but still, it's not, you know, we hear more about windmills than we do about nuclear power plants, which uh, doesn't make sense to a whole lot of people. So we're going to have a discussion here because the federal government has uh, come up with, it's called the Green Bond framework. And that's where we need to start. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to chat with Dr. Chris Kiefer, who is a Toronto Emergency Room Physician. He's also President of Canadians for uh, Nuclear Energy. Uh, Dr. Kiefer, thanks for joining us again. Always a pleasure to chat, sir.
4: It's great to be back, Shane. Thanks
0: for having me. Let's just start right at the beginning. The Green Bond Framework. I had to do a lot of reading about this, and I don't know if I fully understand it. Can you walk us through exactly what the Green Bond Framework is?
4: I mean, it's a, it's a financial mechanism for the government to take on some more debt, to do some government spending, right? And the rationale here is that, um, you know, they can create a vehicle, um, you know, issue a AAA bond um, that's very low risk for private capital to come and give the government some money so they can spend it on some good things. Um, and this is something that's happening around the world. You've probably heard of ESG. Um, yep. You might have heard in the EU that they've spent about better part of three years arguing about their so-called green taxonomy, which is, you know, which basket of technologies are they going to include um, as eligible for green finance um, for their green energy transition? Um, And nuclear was actually included after a big, long struggle. Um, So what's happened here in Canada is um, our famously anti-nuclear environment and climate minister, Stephen Gilbeau, has, it looks like, really single-handedly, without any public or scientific consultation, ruled out nuclear as part of uh, a green technology for this bond. Um, And he's not only ruled it out, he's lumped it in with the the SIN stocks. um, Yeah, I mean, there's a list of things that
0: don't qualify for the green bonds, and things like gambling are, are included in there, along with nuclear energy.
4: Yeah, gambling, um, arms manufacturing, uh, alcohol and tobacco manufacturing. So, I mean, uh, things you'd you know, be scratching your head wondering why the government would be spending money on that sure. anyway. But, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of trolling is, is kind of how I look at it. But in any case, the minister has, has really um, taken a gamble on this. Um, and we know that this is going to cripple climate action. Um, we have to get serious here. You are mentioning sort of what are the available technologies um, to, to decarbonize our country. Um, wind and solar are just not doing it. We no. have the evidence. The evidence is in. You know, I was in Germany last year. Um, you know, Germany, which has made itself an utter addict of Russian oil and gas, by spending uh, over $550 U.S. billion U.S. Dollars, um, on wind and solar, essentially, to, to try and transition off of oil. Well, the first few days of the Russian invasion, the windmills were performing pretty well, but they dropped off about day three and four. That, that $500 billion investment was producing about 6% of uh, its, its potential energy that it could. And they're in a scramble, right? There's more gas flowing under Ukraine right now uh, during the war than there was beforehand. They're, they're running their coal plants all out. So we can see that, you know, the emperor has no clothes when it comes to this idea that we're going to be able to, you know, get off of fossil fuels with wind and solar. Yeah. And they, the record here in Canada is we've, we've done it with nuclear. We did it in Ontario. We phased out coal in Ontario with nuclear energy. Where
0: are we in terms of the rest of the world when we talk about uh, nuclear energy? Are there Are there jurisdictions a little more... Willing to jump into it? Is it happening in other places? Are we, uh, you know, sort of out of step here?
4: Oh, it's it's happening in a big way right now. I mean, Canada is a, is a real leader. Um, we pioneered the Candu reactor. reactor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of our Avro Arrow, right? It's it's an incredible piece of technology. Um, I mean, it's not the Avro Arrow that we're still using it, and it's still performing very, very well. Um, there's been you know sequential uh, development. It's it's gotten better and better over the years. And you know, in, where I am talking to you from here in Ontario right now, we have one of the lowest carbon electricity grids in the world, um, thanks to Candu. Um, So, but we're not unique. There's countries like France, um, which runs on an even higher percentage of nuclear energy, and there's been a real sea change. Um, You know, in this last year, the price of energy has gotten very, very expensive. Um, ESG. Green finance has really pushed money away from traditional forms of energy um, towards things like wind and solar, and we're in an energy crunch. We've seen that with skyrocketing fossil fuel prices even before the war, such as the gas in Europe. And countries are realizing that when fossil fuels get expensive, you've you got to go nuclear. Yeah. Um, so there's been a huge, a huge change here. France is planning on phasing out nuclear from 75 to 50% of their supply, and they're, they're heading back in going gangbusters. There was a, just a new president elected in South Korea, who has reversed their decision for nuclear phase-out and is planning to export 10 new nuclear reactors uh, before 2030. So, so Canada is really out of step with the world, and, it, and it's really changing, seeing the energy reality um, and understanding the importance of nuclear energy for, for decarbonization and for energy independence, frankly, in the setting of this Russian aggression in Ukraine.
0: How big of a setback is this decision to exclude it from the Green Bond framework? How much of a setback is it for um, nuclear energy proponents and development in Canada?
4: Uh, I mean, this, this has huge implications. Um, this, this green bond is going to be for an initial $5 billion, um, which will be announced, I think, uh, June or July of this year. But we're talking about, in the future, tens, maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars could be issued through this framework. And if we're locking out, really, the only um, keystone decarbonizing technology that really has the evidence that it works to get us off of fossil fuels, um, we're kneecapping ourselves. And we're, frankly, kneecapping the Canadian economy, because you have to understand, um, wind and solar, we don't we don't make um, uh, wind turbines or solar panels here in Canada. Those are made in places places with incredibly cheap energy, and incredibly cheap labor, and incredibly poor environmental standards. Right? We have the Uyghurs in China, in China which are largely incarcerated. Um, involved in forced labor in the supply chain for solar panels, for instance. But what we can say about uh, our CanDo nuclear technology is that the supply chain is all here in Canada. We have a 96% made in Canada supply chain. We mine the uranium, we make the fuel, we have the IP on the technology to turn that into useful electricity. So every dollar that we invest here in Canada in nuclear energy stays in our communities, gives people really high-paying jobs, um, provides a good tax base for schools and roads and education. Um, so it's it's really a no-brainer. But we have to drop some old prejudices and we have to drop um, you know a lot of misinformation that we've been fed over the years, which the minister is is playing into. That's what I'm wondering.
0: Why, if we see all these other countries that have decided to go ahead and are seeing the benefit in it, is it just because of, like I said off the top, the scary images? a lot of people have when they hear about nuclear power plants. Is that all it is? And using that to sort of say, oh, we don't want to do that. Look what can happen.
4: Listen, I mean, there there have been accidents. Sure. Um, just as in aviation, there have been accidents. It's important to acknowledge those. They've been really blown out of proportion because we displace a lot of our anxieties about nuclear weapons, about nuclear war, onto nuclear power. Um, you know, so for instance, like the Three Mile Island nuclear accident in the States, most people will categorize that as a catastrophe or a disaster. It was an industrial accident. There was no significant dose of radiation to any of the general public around that plant. The highest dose was the equivalent of one chest X-ray, right? In, in Fukushima, people conflate the deaths from the tsunami and earthquake, about 50 to 20,000 people, with deaths as a result of radiation from the nuclear plant. There were zero deaths from radiation from Fukushima. So we've, we've radically overestimated the dangers of nuclear energy. It's something that has risks inherent to it, but we understand those risks very well. Um, and just as we've gained confidence to fly in you know, pressurized metal tubes 30,000 feet above the Earth um, in modern jet aviation, we've gained a sufficient experience and expertise to run nuclear reactors incredibly safely. And outside of the Soviet Union, uh, there's not been a single life lost to a nuclear accident.
0: So where do you go from here? doctor. I mean, uh, obviously, as you said, this was done without consultation. It's always better if you can have your voice heard before a decision is made. But what do you do now retroactively after this framework came out?
4: Well, you know, as you mentioned, I am the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Our our organization has launched a House of Commons petition. Um, It was just launched yesterday. Um, We have 800 signatures already in about 16 hours. Um, Once you get to 500 signatures um, and it's been sponsored by an MP in the House, it's going to be read on the floor of the House of Commons. And after you get to that number of signatures, the government has to table a written response to the petition. So I'm very much looking forward to that. The petition will be read in mid-April by MP Corey Toker of Saskatchewan. Um, And, you know, we're going to be into the fight. Um, You know, this all started in Glasgow when I confronted uh, Stephen Gilbert About his longstanding anti nuclear record as a Greenpeace activist and whether that would cloud his judgment. You know, there is a scientific consensus. The IPCC, all four of its decarbonization pathways, the largest scientific organization in the world looking at climate change, calls for a drastic increase in nuclear energy. And I said, Is this going to cloud your judgment? He said, Listen, the government has no role um, in deciding on on, uh, energy technology for decarbonization, the market will decide. Six months later, he's in, in this ministerial position, and with a stroke of pen in government, he's struck nuclear down as a potential solution. So, you know, we'll be fighting this uh, tooth, uh, tooth and nail every, every step of the way because this is important. This is important for Canada, for Canadian prosperity. It's important for our kids. It's important for our climate. Uh, it's important for energy independence. So, you know, we'll be there, and I encourage your listeners to go to www.c4ne, that's the number four, .ca, um, and they can find a link to sign the petition.
0: Uh, Dr. Kiefer, we'll continue to check in. I think you, uh, you make some really good points in terms of, um, you know, this is something that a lot of people are saying is, is it has to be at least part of the discussion when we talk about, you know, clean energy and the energy transition and all the rest of that stuff. And, I've, you know, a lot of people say if you're not talking about it, you're not talking about it seriously. So we'll continue to check in and follow your work, and, and uh, we appreciate the update.
4: Shay, thanks for having me back on. It's
0: a pleasure to be here. You bet. Thank you, sir. That's Dr. Chris Kiefer. He's uh, he's a Toronto emergency room physician, but he's also president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. And you might remember we had him on last time. He was the guy that um, actually approached um, our environment minister at COP26 in Scotland and confronted him about nuclear energy in Canada. And as you heard him say, this is what happened. So uh, work needs to be done. I don't want to bring up any bad memories for anybody, but think about it. Today is March 10th. And depending on uh, what stands out to you, tomorrow or Saturday is probably the anniversary of COVID coming home for you. I think it was, I don't know if, it, I can't remember if it was 11th or 12th for me, but I've told the story before. I coached minor hockey and we were headed onto the ice. It was a Thursday night to play a, a semifinal game. Winner goes to the final on Saturday. And just before we left the dressing room to go out for warm-up, I got the email from first Hockey Edmonton and then from Hockey Alberta saying, hey, guys, this is it. This is your last game. As of midnight tonight, there will be no more hockey. That was it. Shut down. And we all know what's happened since. So this is it. Two years of this nonsense now. Spring break is coming up, too. I think for most Edmonton students, Edmonton area students kicks off on the 23rd, 24th, something like that towards the end of the month anyway. So we're almost there. And this spring break is going to be very, very different than the last two spring breaks because we had the shutdowns. It's a bit of a mess last year. This year, there's really nothing in the way of doing whatever it is that you want to do. There's no travel restrictions. You might have to do some testing, but there's nobody saying you shouldn't travel. There's no, you know, problems there. Um, camps are open, all that sort of stuff should be operating as normal. So that's that's nice. It's the first time in a long time. And I think a lot of us, especially parents with kids, could probably use a break right about now after what we've seen over the last two years. So a lot of people will travel, a lot of people will take off, and others will choose not to, regardless, whatever. But it's an important spring break no matter how you're going to spend it. So to talk a bit about why it's so important this time, and how you can make the best of it. We're going to chat with Dr. Lindsay Javer, who's an assistant professor of educational psychology at the Faculty of Education at the University of Windsor. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time.
5: Hi, Shay. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, when you take a look at spring break, I mean, every spring break is fun. I remember being a kid, but spring break 2022... um, it arrives pretty much two years into hell for all of us. Let's call it what it is. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. Uh, in one way or another, the last two years has been miserable for a whole lot of people. Life, you know, got turned upside down. So this is a big, big spring break, isn't it?
5: Absolutely, yes. I think, I think everybody's looking forward to it for different reasons, but it'll be, I think everybody needs that break.
0: I think you're absolutely right. So let's just take a look at what it's been like for the last two years, especially if you're a parent with kids. I mean, talk about needing a break. Just think of all the things they've been through. You know, if you've got kids at home and stuff, just talk about what it's been like over the past two years.
5: Yeah, so we have four kids (laughs) at home, and uh, when this all happened, they were ranging from four to 17 uh, when this happened. So it was exhausting and trying to work and then navigate, you know, their mental health and the social isolation and then online schooling with a JK student yeah. uh, and everything. It was, um, it was a lot. And uh, you know, talking with friends of mine with kids too, a lot of us in the mental health profession, you know, that we're supposed to know better and know what to do and handle it. Like we were feeling burnt out. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a long two years.
0: Yeah. when for, it goes, yeah. And when it drags on for as long as it has, um, I mean, I don't want to say trauma, but but it can leave a mark, right? I mean, like you say, burnout, I mean, it can really have an impact. Absolutely. And I think a lot of
5: people are sort of referring to it as like a collective trauma uh which can be experienced by different people in different ways right but i think there's a lot of grief so a lot of people are talking about kind of like yes. the grieving of a loss of you know a lot of our time like it feels i think to a lot of people that the last two years have sort of been stolen in, in a way right yeah, and we haven't sure. we've really struggled to kind of uh you know deal with all the ups and downs and lockdowns open shutdown right everything online offline um so I think it's learned, Yeah, it's led to a lot of burnout, I mean, especially for parents and, you know, then parents who are also maybe educators or working in the health profession or in essential workers had that added stressor from their jobs on top of trying to support, you know, their kids at home.
0: So no doubt we're coming up on spring break. It's a week, whatever. It's important. I mean, this is a welcome break for everybody. Absolutely, yeah. How do you make the best of it, though? What do you do? I mean, how do you not just sort of, End up sitting on the couch and not getting everything out of it. What's what? What's your recommendation to make sure that you you take full advantage of this time?
5: Yeah, I think that's a, that's the a tricky thing, right? Because when we when we think of rest, we kind of think of that, like you said, sitting on the couch, yeah. not doing anything, maybe watching Netflix or something. But um, you know, we're we're kind of trying to talk about like just taking little moments to reconnect with your kids, right? And really do things that sort of maybe are more positive and focus on like. You know, rebuilding their self-esteem, their, you know, feelings of worth and belonging um, within the family. So some ideas, you know, for little things that you can do is obviously like spending time in nature. Always a great one. Um, You know, even little things like a 10-minute walk, uh, you know, a few times or going to, you know, a local park or a conservation area. Um, I guess there in Edmonton, you'd have to put on your uh, snowsuit <laughs> to go <Yeah. laughs> to go out potentially. Um, but you know, even just finding little time to get outside with the kids is great. Um, another thing that's you know usually fun is like a family activity night. So you know the traditional sort of family game night or something maybe a little different, like um, doing like a camp in where you kind of do like a camping thing, but indoors or like an indoor beach um, sort of vacation where we roll out some towels and, you know, spend some time is a great activity uh, to you too. And then just like getting active in any way. Right. So we know that regular activity of any kind uh, really has such great physical and mental health benefits like for adults and children. So that's a great one. And then connecting daily. So it can be like just little tiny, simple moments of sort of being present and mindful with your children. So, you know, looking them in the eye when you're having a conversation, as opposed to while you're, everybody's on their phone <laughs> or um, doing chores together, right? Like little things like that can make a great uh, difference. And then the big one trying to reduce screen time oh boy. <laughs> <So> I know. <don't, laughs> yeah, everybody always says that right and uh but i think the pandemic has sort of it's changed our thinking a little bit about screens because we became so reliant on it to connect yeah. with friends and family and there were lots of great ways that that did help promote kind of some social connection but um you know we're just kind of suggesting if you can have everybody including parents put down the phone, turn off the TV once in a while and, you know, engage in other activities together. And just even small amounts of time of putting that down or turning off, you know, the TV can really have a lot of benefits for you and your children.
0: Harder to, harder to do than to say though, right? I mean, because it's, it's, it's our default in so many ways.
5: Yeah. And, and you know what? It's funny. My, my observation is often the parents more have more difficulty yeah. with putting down those phones and uh, turning off, you know, not checking email and not being on social media. And I think, but it's, I think the idea is like you don't have to have a no screen day or hours and hours, but just even putting it down for five or ten minutes, right, and engaging in an activity or something, and just and, and I think partly it's kind of fine. Like once you put that down for a bit and you start doing something together, whatever it is, you're you're not as likely to pick it back up as
0: quickly. Sounds to me like all these things you're talking about are just putting a little bit of thought and effort into um being present and actually appreciating and making something out of the time rather than just sort of letting it run by as you do what you always do. Just sort of take a moment to think about what you want to do, what you want to get out of it.
5: Absolutely. Yep, just those little little moments that can add up to mean so much to for everybody to feel connected and like they belong and you know that you care and so I think sometimes we try to plan for really big things and that becomes overwhelming and then we don't always follow through but if you kind of just you know insert these smaller things in throughout yeah. you know your time then it's it's easier to follow through and to find that connection.
0: Excellent advice and I think it's something that we can all use heading into this spring break. Thanks so much doc appreciate it. You're welcome thanks for having me. You too have a great day. That is Dr. Lindsay Jaber. Dr. Jaber is an assistant professor of educational psychology, Faculty of Education, University of Windsor. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.